Uh, let's turn together this evening to the book of First John as we continue our readings and our study through this short but very lovely and very instructive portion of God's Word in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 only. The book of First John, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And I would encourage you to have the passage open as we study it together tonight. Where the Apostle John writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Thus reads the living and abiding word of God. May he, the author of it, bless that reading to our understanding. Now, I believe it was on the 28th of May in the year 1987 that many of us woke up and read for the first time in the headlines of our newspapers on that day the details of what we could describe in one sense as a holy war. At least the newspaper editors and reporters described it in that way. The battle that had begun very quickly to develop between the well-known TV evangelists and personalities of the Christian world. And some of you, I think, can very vividly remember uh, that year and those days as accusations and counter-accusations were flashed across our television screens and we read of them in our newspapers and heard of them not only on Christian radio programs but on the secular radio as well. Those accusations and counter-accusations of financial abuse and even sexual abuse on the part of certain leading television evangelist personalities. And since that time, I'm told, a popular book has been written called The Worldly Evangelicals, decrying the fact that many who profess the evangelical faith today, not simply the leading personalities, are indistinguishable, in fact, from the world. And my dear friends in Christ this evening, these kind of things do raise the question that if the Christian is indistinguishable from the world around him, how can we possibly expect to influence the world when the world cannot tell its own difference from us? In other words, it is a tragedy of the greatest dimension when the church that professes the name of Christ is found to be indistinguishable from the world and bearing the very characteristics and attributes of that world from which the scripture says it should be so distinctly separate. 
Now we've come to a passage this evening that is going to open up that whole subject and I have to confess to you tonight that I don't think there's any possibility that I'm going to preach the whole of the sermon that I prepared for this occasion. And I believe it would be a counsel of wisdom for me to limit myself perhaps to only the first point of three that you'll notice on the sermon notes and at most the first point and a half of the sermon. I feel that we came to a very full diet of God's word this morning and for me to complete all that I've set out to do this evening on a subject that is so important and so vital would take us well beyond the hour of seven o'clock as we plan to finish tonight. Now, let me remind you as we begin to look at this vital subject this evening, love not the world. Let me remind you of what John's emphasis has been already through this epistle. He has distinguished right from the beginning of the book of First John, the true Christian, from the one who is a false professor of the faith, who has the right language, who appears in some senses to bear the marks of a Christian, and yet John has warned us he is, in effect, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so much of the emphasis of the book of First John so far has been upon these distinguishing traits, if you look with me as you have your Bible open, you remember that chapter 1, verse 6 began the theme that was often repeated in these verses, if we claim to have fellowship with God. And verse 8 of chapter 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Again in verse 10, if we claim that we have not sinned, and in chapter 2, verse 4, where John says, The man who says that I know him, but goes on to live in a different way, cannot possibly, John says, be a Christian. Or in verse 6 of chapter 2, again the same word, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. And in verse 9 of chapter 2, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Now, in very powerful and evocative ways, then, John has been quoting the opposition, has been taking the very words that those who claim to be Christians, but in essence clearly were not Christians, what they were saying about themselves and he has been showing that what they claim is denied by the way in which they live. And the whole theme, in a sense, of the epistle so far has been that if your life does not conform to what you say you are, you are living not in the light, but in the darkness still. And he has given us, you remember, three characteristics, three leading distinguishing marks of what a true Christian is. He is a man who confesses his sin. That is the first thing. He is a man who keeps the commandments of God because he loves to be obedient to God. That is the second thing. And thirdly, he is a man, you remember, who loves the brethren. 
Now, the reason why I'm giving you this summary and summation of the letter so far is that now John delivers to us the fourth distinguishing mark of what a real Christian is. What is it? That he does not love this fallen world. And you'll notice both tonight and on the following Sunday evening in God's providence, but the whole theme of verses 15 and 16 and 17 from the second chapter of John that we read a short time ago is upon the lust of the world contrasted with what should be in the Christian's heart, the love for the Father. And there's a sense in which, you know, I think all the ground that John has taken us over is in preparation for what he's bringing to us in verses 15 through 17. He's been seeking, as it were, to gain a vantage point from which he can urge us on in our Christian lives, whether we are children, as we saw last Sunday evening, in the faith, or whether we are young men in the faith, growing in the word of God and being able to use it effectively as the sword of the Spirit, or whether we are fathers, ripe and mature in our Christian experience. He's gained the vantage point to come to us in our different levels of maturity and urge us on by saying, do not slip in to the world's ways. Don't be enticed by the alluring attractions of this fallen world. Don't let your guard down. But in contrast to the love and the lust of the world, you are to be encouraged to develop a loving relationship with your heavenly Father. Now this, I believe, is setting this great passage in its context. The fourth great mark of a Christian is not that he confesses his sins merely, not that he loves the brethren, not that he keeps God's commands, but that he does not love a fallen world. Now, there are three things that really these verses are saying to us of the very greatest possible significance and importance, and that is why I think it would be a great mistake to rush through them this evening and try and compress into one exposition what really requires two expositions. So I want you to concentrate with me on the first of those three points this evening and to see how far we get with it. And the first of those three points is that in these verses, John defines the world. The second is that he discerns what is the world. And the third, of course, is that he gives us the way of being delivered from the world. But like any wise teacher and preacher, he first of all defines his terms and the area of his subject and concern. And you see this right at the beginning of verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. And in that one half of one verse... I think we have enough to take us through, as I say, the rest of this evening's exposition. 
Now it is, as we begin to look at it, in a sense, the hinge of the whole passage that is before us. What is the world that John is warning us against? How are we to understand it? How is it, beloved, to be defined in our minds this evening as we come to this subject? Now it's very vital to tread very carefully and very circumspectly here. I'm told sometimes by my fellow elder that I need to define my own terms. Uh, and circumspectly is like if you care for the illustration, a cat that has jumped up on top of a wall that is studded with pieces of glass. I don't know if you've ever seen a cat doing that, but it puts its feet down ever so carefully as it walks along that glass-studded wall. Now that's what walking circumspectly really means. And we need to do this as we come to understand together tonight the meaning of the term the world. Because if we define it too broadly, it leads into a kind of legalism and separatism. There are Christians around today for whom many things are worldly things to be avoided. And what you see in that person's life is such a narrowness, I cannot do this and I cannot do that and I cannot go to this place and I cannot dress in a certain way because the definition of what the world is has become so broad that it encompasses almost everything. And you have the kind of Christian who is so legalistic, if you get close to him, he almost smells of gunpowder. But if we define it too narrowly, then you have the very opposite effect of a worldly Christian. Because he says the world consists only in doing this one thing or these one or two things. And if we avoid them, we can do all the rest with acceptance, and it leads into a worldly type of living the Christian life. Now what we need to do then is to examine this term first positively and then negatively, and this is going to take us the whole of our time tonight. Now it's very significant as you look at the term, first of all, positively, do not love the world or anything in the world, that John has only used the term once in his letter in writing to us so far. Look back with me in chapter 2 in verse 2, the only occurrence so far in his letter, where John says, he, that is Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now it's clear that he's using the term there in a very different sense as we'll see from his use of the term in verse 15 and the whole world means all of humanity. And do you remember that I guarded the interpretation of that text when we preached on Christ as the propitiation for the sins of God's people? But there the term means the whole world of humanity. But look you, in verses 15, 16, and 17, in three short verses, the term occurs no less than six times. 
Did you notice that in reading it with me in your Bible this evening? The world, the world, the world, the world. Repetitive refrain six times in the compass of three short verses. Now, what does he mean in these verses and in verse 15? Well, he means of a whole system of fallen humanity. And John has previously used it in other senses, certainly, than in that sense. In writing John's gospel, he's used the term the world in the sense of all of humanity. He's used it in John chapter 1, John's gospel chapter 1 of the created universe. When Jesus came into the world and the world did not recognize him and so forth. But here in this passage, the term refers to fallen humanity as it is organized against God. Now look with me in First John at these other references that make this very clear. Chapter 3, verse 1. You'll need to turn quite quickly in your Bibles to these several references. He says, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, that is Jesus. Or in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, where he says that many false prophets are gone out into the world, where the world is identified as the sphere where Satan is operating. Many false prophets have gone out into that sphere to execute their work of deception. Turning back in 1 John 3, verse 13, do not be surprised if the world hates you, John says. Or in 1 John 4, 3 again, the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. And finally, what clinches it is First John 5, verse 19. The world lies in the grip of the evil one, John says. Now, this interpretation is surely confirmed by what you find in the words of Christ in John's gospel, because three times in John's gospel, our Lord describes Satan as the prince of this world, and the world as the sphere in which Satan is both ruling and operating and influencing the whole course of ungodly men. For instance, in John 12, verse 31, when the Greeks came uh, to Jesus and asked to be able to see him, they came to Philip and asked with that request. Jesus suddenly realized that the cross was before him, and he spoke those words concerning the prince of this world, Satan, being cast out. And again you find it in John 14, verse 30, where Jesus speaks of this world being under the dominion of Satan. And in John 16, verse 11, where the Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment of judgment because the prince of this world is cast out. So in other words, the world is the system of thought and behavior that is characteristic of a Christless and a godless world or humanity. A world that is in rebellion against the ways and the will and the word 
of God. That is the world that we are not to love. Now you see, when John wrote these words, all around was an atmosphere of temptation for the early church. You know, we can scarcely grasp today what it was to be a Christian in the first century. We think that we have it difficult today, but we forget that centuries of acquaintance with the sanctions of God's law and the permeating effect of the Christian faith over all society has lessened so much of the paganism that would otherwise be rampant around us in society. But in the first century, the world was all around the church with unrelieved pagan darkness and idolatry. And if you read, for instance, 1 Corinthians and even 2 Corinthians, you can almost feel the pervasive atmosphere of ungodliness and immorality and darkness that pressed in on that infant community in Corinth that grew, as I've said to you, like a flower that sprang up from the Corinthian mud. The ancient paganism that surrounded the church was so strong It was Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, who said this. Let me quote it to you. Why, even the streets and marketplaces, the bars and taverns, and our very dwelling places are not free altogether from idols. Satan and his angels have filled the whole world. And you see, if you lived in those times, the conscientious Christian knew he was in a tight-knit society that was organized around the practice of idolatry. He was forced to absent himself from many of the heathen public festivals because idol worship would take place and sacrifice would be offered to idols. He had to absent himself from all manner of communal activities that otherwise would have been lawful to him because of its association with idolatry. He was in conscience even forbidden to be a member of a trade guild. He was in effect ostracized because we know those trade guilds of the first century had monthly banquets in which the revelers met in the idolaters temple and commenced their revelry with sacrifices before the idol that was being worshipped. And the whole proceedings of daily life were tangled up with pagan sacrifices and heathen rituals. Now you see, when you consider that as a Christian, you either become part of it or you stand separate from it. And interestingly, in the New Testament, in the letter to the seven churches, you read of those who profess to be followers of Christ, who are called Nicolaitans, who took the other road of compromise and had worked out an agreement with this ungodly world in which they could participate in these ungodly things that dishonored the name of Christ and maintain that they were Christians. 
And some of the severest words you find in the letters to the seven churches are addressed to those who were in the world and professed to be Christians and were of it also. So the world comprises the organized kingdom of evil that is all around us, positively speaking. Now, negatively, I want to share five things with you, and then I'm going to draw to a close this evening. We need, as I say, to walk circumspectly. If the world is indeed this organized kingdom of ungodliness, we need to define what it is not in order that we may walk circumspectly in our understanding of this passage. Now, I want to mention quite quickly five things, as I say, that the world is not. Because Christians have often made great errors and mistakes in these five areas. First of all, there have been Christians who have said, well, the world, of course, comprises, among other things, the created order, the world of created things, the oceans, the sunsets, the trees, the mountains, the world of nature that brings so much pleasure into our lives. This is sinful and is to be avoided. Now, beloved, this is not only a heresy, I have to say to you, of the first century church, because the Gnostics, remember, against whom John wrote this very letter, believed that that all created things were evil and God could not have contact with created matter except through a descending order of eons or spirits because matter is evil and created things are evil and you must not come in contact with them any more than you have to or you will be defiled. It was not only a first century heresy and a fourth century heresy among the Manichaeans but it's also an error that Christians make today, especially in the fundamentalist camps. The idea that somehow this world has been created by the devil. And so we must keep as much of it out of our lives, even created things. And it's contrary to what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5, where he says, everything is good. Nothing is to be rejected, but received instead with thanks. So you see, it is not the world of created things. Now secondly, it is not, mark you, the world of material things, materialism that we have to avoid. It's not home. It's not cars, it's not vacations, it's not food, it's not recreations, it's not art, it's not music, it's not literature, it's not culture that we have to avoid. And I want to tell you that many Christians have made shipwreck because they have thought that John is saying, avoid these things, the world in that sense. I'm reminded of the words of Richard Sibbs, the great 17th century Puritan, who said, God has created worldly things, listen, to sweeten our passage to heaven. 
Isn't that a beautiful thought? God has created worldly things to sweeten our passage to heaven. In other words, God has given us material things to be enjoyed. They are enriching. And we of all people as professing Christians should be able to use and enjoy the handiwork and gifts of a heavenly father provided that they do not get the mastery over us. So secondly, it's not material things and materialism. Now thirdly, it is not non-Christian people, beloved, that we are commanded not to love. You know, some Christians still feel today that it's very worldly to have non-Christian friends. And we must only have Christian friends, and preferably from our own fellowship. Now, it is not sinful, I must tell you, to fraternize with non-Christian people. Did not Jesus himself confirm the teaching of the Old Testament law when he said the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as you love yourself? How can you love your neighbor if you've no contact with him? And it is not wrong to join non-Christian clubs and societies and to have an interest in the things that they have an interest in. Oh, but you say, doesn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, don't associate with immoral people? Yes, he does. But in verse 10, he explains his meaning. I did not at all mean the immoral and covetous people in the world because then you would need to go out of the world. He meant those in the fellowship who are acting in a way that is inconsistent with what they profess, they are to be avoided because they are hypocrites. And doesn't Paul again in Philippians 2 verse 15 say that we exist in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation among whom, listen, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So thirdly, it is not the avoidance of non-Christian people. Now, fourthly, negatively again, it is not the avoidance of secular vocations. Now, after all, many of the great men in the Bible were such. You think of Adam, he was a farmer, a tiller of the ground. You think of Abraham, he was a rich man, wealthy in this world's goods, a keeper of sheep and cattle in great numbers. You think of Nehemiah, whose life we studied in great detail two years ago, the cupbearer to the heathen king, Artaxerxes I. You think of the Lord Jesus, and I say this reverently, a carpenter in the village of Nazareth for 30 years or, or so of his life. It is not wrong to have a secular vocation. We should have one. And we should do the very best that we can in that vocation. Whatever you do, Paul says in Colossians 3, do it heartily as unto the Lord. And let me tell you this, if you do that heartily to the Lord, you will almost certainly prosper, as some of you are discovering, because we're living in an age when men no longer do their secular vocation heartily in any sense of the word. And if you do, you will stand out and God normally will prosper you. And as Cotton Mather said, piety begets prosperity. 
And you must be careful that the prosperity you get does not then swallow the piety. But God nowhere forbids secular vocations. Now the fifth thing is this, and then I must close. It is not avoidance of recreations and pleasure. You know, I read some time ago words of Jim Packer, Dr. J.I. Packer, when he described fundamentalism as monasticism's last stand. Now think about that. Fundamentalism, evangelicalism today, as monasticism's last stand. And I thought a lot about that remark. And what he was saying is that generally in the fundamentalist world there is such an unscriptural view of what the world is that Christians are saying, handle not, touch not, concerning so many things that biblically are perfectly lawful for us to enjoy in moderation. And what we have in the fundamentalist camp today is a revival of the 4th and 5th century monasticism. When the early church went astray from scripture and went off at a tangent and said, Jesus said, keep yourself separate from the world, therefore we'll go and live in caves and deserts of the wilderness. And any contact with this sinful world will defile us, and especially recreations and pleasure. And I want to say to you as I finish this evening that if ever you needed proof that when John said do not love this world, he did not mean do not enjoy its legitimate recreations and pleasures. The proof is in the creation of the world itself, isn't it? How did God create this world? In shades of gray? Of course he didn't. When you think of the wonderful colorful universe that he has made with its kaleidoscopic movement and its variegated created order and its changeful scenes from sunrise to sunset. How can you say that God forbids legitimate recreation and pleasure? The whole creation speaks of the creator's desire for his handiwork to be enjoyed. And if ever you needed another proof, it's this, the Sabbath day. What is the Sabbath day that comes with never-failing recurrence every week, but an expression of God's concern that we should be recreated? Isn't that a great thought on which to finish this evening, that we can find pleasure in enjoying God's handiwork as he did, which is the reason for the establishment of the Sabbath day, and that we can be recreated spiritually in the image of God as well. Now, beloved, you may think these things are very basic, but I want to say to you as I finish, I do not apologize in bringing them to your attention. The world that we are to avoid is none of these things. But the world that we are to avoid and withdraw from is the organized kingdom of evil that is under the control of the prince of this world, Satan himself. But as for all these other activities, an enlightened Christian attitude is that graciously, 
We will participate in everything in a kindly, helpful, and effective way in all that does not conflict with my loyalty to Christ. And without parade and without ostentation, I may take my place in the world of created things and enjoy myself there and in doing so may be the salt and the light that Jesus spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount. Well then, let's finish there. And next Sunday evening, God willing, we'll come to look at discerning the world and then being delivered from the world. Let's pray.